0: In the back of my mind, Christian life was a treadmill. We just slowly turned the treadmill up. Crisis is not our enemy. In fact, nothing good happens without crisis. We see people living in a kind of way that we would like to follow, charting a kind of route. I guess I'd gone from worshiping the waves that God made to worshiping the God who made the waves. And surely
1: that's got to be so much more inspiring.
0: Guys, we have a treat for you today, especially for those of you who are cross-listeners with the Ransom Tart Podcast, which it could be that some of you are. and <laughs> All six of you. <laughs> <laughs> All six Ransom Tart Podcast listeners. But we have Alan Arnold in the studio today with us. Alan is part of the Ransom Tart team. He handles the production of the podcast among a series of other roles relating to the content presence of Ransom's Heart in the world. But Alan's here for two reasons. He has a fascinating story with work, as you will see very, very quickly. And then he has a long-term study of an engagement with story. And we've been wanting since kind of the release of his book, but actually earlier when he started telling us stories about his business past, to get him into the studio and kind of walk through, like, how did you become the kind of person who can engage story in the way that you do? So, pumped to have Alan here. Alan, welcome to the And Sons podcast.
1: Thanks, Blaine. Wow. Still just so s- you know, some ground rules. You can swear, but no <laughs> F-bombs.
2: <laughs> we do F-bombs all the time on the Ransomed Heart podcast. We just edit it out. Oh, yeah. I'm just connecting some yeah. guys, <laughs> come on.
0: Speaking of the Ransomed Heart podcast, you mentioned on an episode about your book that you— in your time as VP of Fiction, is that right? Right. At Thomas Nelson? Yes. Published between 500 and 600 novels.
2: Yes. And that was over probably about eight or nine years, but uh, it was a blast because it was story of every kind. So historical romance, sci-fi, young adult, contemporary, and getting to work with all types of storytellers, younger, older, bestsellers, first-time writers. But Got to work, yeah, with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of storytellers and published hundreds and hundreds of books, and then before that, got to work on the nonfiction side with people like Billy Graham and Max Lucado and just a lot of well-known authors. So it's, it's been my life, it feels like, has been drawn to story and how you tell story, whether you're doing it in a nonfiction way or whether you're writing a novel.
0: Fascinating. So what I want to know is, in that process, What are some of the stories, or just specifically one, that from a work standpoint stands out to you of a piece of fiction that crossed your desk, that you either thought, this is never going to work, and then something in the process of working with the author actually got the story moving, or thought, oh my goodness this has passed not only my sniff test, but I can't stop reading. In my head right now, I'm going, please don't be Amish fiction. Please don't be Amish (laughs) fiction. Please
1: don't be Amish fiction. You saw hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts and books. Like, What do you choose from all of that? Yeah, well,
2: as far as choosing, the best way to choose was always who is the most passionate. Because we would have writers who wanted to be a novelist send us proposals all the time, and they'd send us three or four different types here's amish here's historical here's suspense you just tell me what you want and i'll write it well they were trying to do everything they could to stack the deck to get published but those were the people that i shied away from the most or the quickest because i knew they don't really have a passion for a specific story they just want to be a they have a passion to be an author but i want people who have a specific story that has to come out and so You know, when we were writing them, to me, the stories that first really attracted me were from an author named Stephen Lawhead. And Stephen Lawhead writes general market, really fantasy, Celtic mythology series most of the time. He's done a King Arthur series. He's done a series on Robin Hood, reimagined totally as if it happened in Wales in the 13th century. Very talented author. Well, I started reading his fiction before I got into publishing And I was out of college, and it really awakened me to the power of a story to bring you somewhere deeper. And I could tell there was a Christian worldview in it, but it was not Christian fiction. It was God-soaked, but it was very earthy, very real, a lot of violence, and it wasn't trying to teach a lesson, but it was taking you on a journey that would change you by the end of it. And that's when I thought, man, I would love to do that one day. I would love to be part of that one day. And the cool thing is, once I got into publishing, over the course of the years, I actually became his publisher, Hmm. and the very series that awakened that in me, he came to me one day after we had done several new books, and he said, hey, what would you think about republishing these books that you first fell in love with, but now you're the publisher, and we'll rework them. So it was a full circle into how God awakened you into story, and then actually let you come full circle and work on those very stories for a new generation.
1: That's super cool. In that I hear, I want to find the question that is almost in the undertones. You're talking about a good author brings their worldview to the table and it seeps into the other story that they're telling rather than setting out to tell a parable or right. some nice little lesson. And I think that's not something I'm always aware of, how much someone is bringing their understanding of the world to the table. But is that something that you are fairly aware of, story to story, author to author? Big time. And that's
2: when I started the fiction division, Thomas Nelson, as a publishing group, had been around for 200 years, founded in Scotland, 1798. But they had never had a fiction division. So they had done some novels, but they never had a group dedicated to story over 200 years of being in publishing. And so I started that division and loved it. And my goal from the very beginning was... We don't want to tell stories that are lectures or that are sermons or that are thinly veiled um, morality tales. What we want to do is we want to invite people into stories that stir their heart, that, that take them somewhere new. And if they're being written by Christians, that will be infused into the book. But we were publishing for a while almost as many general market stories as Christian fiction stories. Because we really were trying to reach the mainstream audience with a better kind of story. And that was missing in most of Christian fiction. Because I think as Christians with our art, there's just this feeling so many times that if I'm doing this for God, then I've got to make it religious. Mm -hmm. And when you strip that away and say, actually, when you're doing it with God rather than for God, you get to come alongside him in a wildly creative process. And just trust him and trust your own instincts in your gifting as a storyteller if you're an author let it go where it goes because at the end of the day you're inviting people on a journey you're not trying to teach them a lesson and so that was our philosophy from the beginning and and i think we made a real difference in that world
0: that's so good it is good but i want to hit the brakes and i want to back up and go to somehow you ended up starting a publishing division inside a long-term prestigious publisher, which just sounds kind of fundamentally impossible uh, or fascinating uh, how a person even goes about doing that. But I want to go to how that happened and let's fill in the story. So first job out of college, what did you do?
2: First job out of college, I worked at an ad agency. And for those of you who have seen like the HBO series Mad Men, it was a lot like that when I started. I mean, wild, highly creative, which I loved, but a lot of men there who were running the companies who were really in kind of a Peter Pan syndrome, meaning super creative, but young, had not learned how to become a man. And so were staying in this young place, which served them really well creatively in some ways. But you were working with people who had no self-control, who had no real maturity. And so, guys, in my first job, like I can remember being in meetings where my boss would be smoking a cigarette, he'd say, Alan, you need to go out of town in about an hour, catch a plane, We're gonna you're gonna need to go calm this client down. And I'd say, well, I, I can't really go in an hour, like I've, I've, I've gotta prepare for the trip and I've, I can go tomorrow, I can't really go in an hour and so he we'd be in a conference room and he'd be so mad he'd just pick up a chair and start throwing chairs at me like lunging the roller chairs you know the kind of heavy chairs and uh, there was no hr department it was really kind of like the wild west and and some of the most creative campaigns came out of that shop so it was fulfilling on a creative level it was crazy on a life level. Uh, They would throw parties twice a year, and the parties, the posters around the the office, we had 200 people at the company, and uh, the title of the party was The Best Party You'll Never Remember. And the whole goal was, you can't bring a girlfriend, boyfriend, you can't bring a spouse. We're just going to go to this party, and there's going to be a lot of alcohol and a live band, and nobody's going to remember what happened the next day. We'll have limos to take you home. Like, that was the culture of my first job, and it, 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 was, it was a wild awakening to both. I love creativity and it flourishes in certain places, but I also knew there had to be a better way to pursue creativity than what I was watching.
1: <laughs> I mean, I can't even imagine that. I, I know it's a different day and different age. And truly, that sounds like the Wild West of your boss coming at you with rolling chairs and... I mean getting so pissed at you for not being able to drop everything at the drop of a hat when you were you're in your 20s you're 24 right. yeah, 23. 23
2: 24
1: What were the things that were becoming clear and motivating you that you were wrestling with then through those years that that kind of guided your trajectory
2: Well I knew I knew that God had called me to pursue creativity and art at the same time I knew that this was not the environment where I would flourish or it would flourish And so I remember waking up one day just saying, I love what I get to do, but at the end of the day, if I end up selling more sugar water, we were working on the Pepsi account at the time. And I was thinking, if all I end up doing in my life is helping people buy more sugar water because of my gifting, I'm going to have lived a really small story. And so at that point, I made the shift into the Christian publishing industry. And I felt like at least at that point, I didn't know a whole lot about where I wanted to be, you know, a decade from them, but I knew at least I want to take my gifting and I want to do it for something that matters. It has some eternal value. And that's actually where I met John Eldridge, your dad. I met him on a book campaign before I had started the fiction division. I was on the marketing team and overseeing the branding and marketing and so my life started to change when I surrounded myself in a different environment where I could not only use my gifting, but but felt like it was for something that had some eternal value instead of just simply stuff.
1: Okay. So this is a super practical question because that almost sounds like way too easy of a shift. Like you're at this crazy secular party place and then you like, walk out the door and ride into the door at Thomas Nelson. How long were you wrestling with, do I stick this job out? Do yeah. I put in some miles? Because that's a question so many guys are asking.
2: Well, yeah, Sam, thanks. It, it wasn't, you know, I, I'm given the quick top line summary. But at the time when I was at that agency, I wrestled with that question for about a year. And I was working, I'd shifted to a different account, a larger account. And it was high stress, but it was a lot of recognition, and it was going really well. And I started to realize this is not sustainable for my heart in this environment, but I don't have a lot of options. I didn't think I did. Well, about that time, the, the account pulled out, and at an ad agency, when an account leaves, your job is in danger because your, your income is tied to that account. So if the account says, bye, we're going to another agency, oftentimes the whole staff on that account gets fired. Well, our account pulled out, and when they did, they came to me and said, Hey, Alan, look, we're we're letting most of your team go. We're going to keep you. We don't have a new account right now, but we're pitching the Texas lottery. And so we want you to run point on a lot of the pitching of that. And I don't have a problem if people want to play the lottery, but I didn't want to be the guy promoting the lottery to people and making more people want to play it. And so that was a real test for me early in my career because I could keep my salary and this pitch would have lasted, you know, the, the, probably half a year. And by the time that was done, there would probably be a bigger account. So I could have just said, I'm, I don't really like this, but I'm just going to shut up and do it. But I told them, no, I, I didn't feel like that was an account I could put my heart behind and didn't want to be part of that. And so they were in the process of letting me go when this other opportunity came up and got open that door, but it was, there was risk involved. And honestly, guys, if I had just taken the easy way out at that time and just said, you know what? I don't really believe in this, but I'm gonna do it because it pays the bills and I'll try to just do it as short as I can and and get out of it. If I had done that, I probably wouldn't be where I am today because it was only when I said no and they started the process of letting me go that I found this new opportunity.
0: Crazy. That's amazing. Would, how did that happen? You say, God opened this door. Yeah. How did God open that door?
2: Well, he, because I think what happened was once I said, I'm not going to do this, and I was at an agency of about 200 people, and best I know, I was one of two believers at the agency. And I would, you know, like some days I would happen to have a, a book or if I was going like to a study afterwards, I might have my Bible with me. And I mean, it was disruptive to the people around me because their perception of a Christian wasn't really who I was. I, I was breaking their stereotype, and yet they still found it very awkward and a little bit offensive. And so once I started to allow myself to say, I do have a calling, and I'm not going to just do anything for a job, for a paycheck. I'm not going to rationalize it. That was when I started to learn more about my identity and also more to lean into God because all of a sudden, it wasn't up to me. It was going to be a little more up to him on how things worked out. And so what happened after that was I was actually with a friend over at a friend's house and somebody said, hey, there's a job opening at this company. And I said, what's the company? Well, it's a really creative position. Okay, now I'm really interested. And so it was this really low-key conversation that I did not, I I wasn't trying to make things happen. And it was one of the first times in my life, in my career, where I realized it's not all up to me. Like, if I will be the man God's inviting me to be, then I can trust him to put things in motion that would be beyond me trying to push it uphill. And so that was an early lesson in my 20s. And just just a sign of If I can go through life this way. Now, I I didn't always do that. But it was the first time I got a taste of God preparing a way before me and inviting me into something that I wasn't having to, to force my way into. It was a rescue.
0: So you enter publishing. And it seems like by the time you came into publishing, you were just mentioning Lawhead. Some of the, you already had some of the equipment of engaging story. Is that true, or was that built in the process of working on books?
2: No, Story God used story from when I was a young boy really to rescue me in a lot of ways. I grew up in a home where I had a, v- a very um, loving but dominant mom, and she really thrives on safety. So her even today, like when I'll call her, her first question oftentimes on the phone, if we're talking about, hey, you know, I'm going to be doing this or this is coming up, Her first question oftentimes or comment is, is that safe? You know,
1: (laughs) you're like, mom, I'm, I'm in my 50s. (laughs) I can, it's
2: okay. (laughs) Um, And so, and so grew up though with that kind of as her mindset, very protective, very ordered, controlling environment. And then my dad was somewhat passive. And so story, when I grew up, comic books, movies, TV shows, really were ways God spoke to my heart on, these are ways to pursue a woman's heart. These are ways to have a strength. This is how to be brave. And so really those type stories, especially for a period, believe you know, with like comics even, it it really was how God wooed me into a larger story beyond what I was experiencing at home. And so to grow up and, you know, out of college, to be working in the world of story it really felt like it was something God had prepared me for, rescued me through, and now I'm getting to help shape story for others. So it was, it was just a really Camelot period of life because you're working on story, knowing the people that are reading those as they go into those stories, they're going to come out on the other end different, not because of a lesson, but because they see their own. They let their guard down, and story is such a shortcut to the heart. And mm-hmm. so when I was in that role... It was a beautiful time of, and you could go after, you knew if it was a romance, you were probably going primarily after a woman's heart. And if it was a suspense novel, it could be male or female, you know, and fantasy and speculative and young adult, you're going after, you know, teenagers in a way that they wouldn't sit down and have a conversation with you. But through story, man, they can come out differently. So that was a great period. And it really was something I thought I'd probably be doing. Another 20, 30 years. But then I ended up at Ransom Tard.
0: Was Thomas Nelson the publishing agency that you started at?
2: Yes. Well, it was Word Publishing then, which was a competitor of Thomas Nelson, and Thomas Nelson bought them. And so I never switched companies really, but the company was bought out. And so it, it basically was 20 years with Thomas Nelson. It just started with another company.
1: Woof. Alan, I would love for you to unpack a little bit more of what makes someone let their guard down in a story, like what what makes for a story that someone goes, okay, there's something genuine here, I'm connecting with it. And, and they're not defensive. They're not, I don't know, mistrustful, like, because you've, you've named so many different genres. Are there things that are just intangible across the board that people need in order to connect to a story?
2: There are and I think the first way I'd answer it is the beauty of a story well told is it forces the reader to get out of themselves to get out of seeing life only through their lens, through their circumstances. And so the guard starts to go down because they're following a protagonist or a group of people that in many cases uh, are very different than them and they're having they're encountering things that they've never thought of and now they're having to make life or death decisions, or they're having to, you know, choose love over fear or whatever it may be. But they're seeing that in a way that they've stepped out of their own situations and, you know, seeing life like just right up against their face the way they're used to it. So that invitation, I think, is huge to readers. And it's so rare because our culture is so me-focused. Everything is, we live in a very self-gratifying time of life, you know, season of the world, and so, for a story to pull people out of that is a way for them to pause and start to maybe consider some new ways to not only see other people in, in life, but to see themselves, their identity, what intimacy looks like with others, what intimacy looks like with God. And, you know, every great story really does follow the hero's journey mm-hmm. in some way. And so, it also helps people to see okay, there's there's a path and there's a crossroads and I have to make a choice. And when a choice is made, you know, then a mentor comes alongside. You know, when the student is ready, the mentor appears. And so whether that's Gandalf or whether that's Obi-Wan Kenobi or what, in whatever story, there's always that mentor that comes alongside somebody. and And then I think even on just that one piece, it's great because people pause and go, well, I'm kind of doing life on my own. Like I don't really... You know, nobody in my life looks like a Gandalf. Well, great. It may be, you know, you're a librarian, or it may be the next-door neighbor, and they don't look at all like what you imagined a mentor would look like. But story allows people to see what could be and then step into that. And counterwise, the worst stories, I think, are the stories that try to teach a lesson and are, or preach a sermon and are heavy-handed and thinly-veiled characters and cardboard situations. Uh, It just, like, I had to tell many writers, look, I think you've got something to say to people, and it's a sermon. So don't waste the reader's time and try to put it in a story. Preach a sermon. Like, go be a preacher or go be a teacher. But the best way to invite people into a story, if you're a storyteller, is to invite them into your journey. And so That doesn't just mean novelist. It means if you're telling your son or daughter a story or if you're telling your spouse a story or a coworker, like invite them into the journey you're on because that's the journey worth taking. It's not when you have all the answers and have everything figured out, but it's when you're on the journey and you're scuffed up and you're not sure how you're going to make it. Like to me, those are always the most intriguing stories when a writer would start to write in fiction form that because they didn't know where it was going to end much less the reader.
0: Mm. I love that. What this makes me think of is, you know, Dan Allender's book to be told on right. reading your life, his story and hearing you talk, I'm thinking of how we encourage our guys to, Hey, you need to learn to read your life, his story, to be curious about your own story. But that requires actually understanding the things that make a great story and actually understanding how you, engage a great story and i mean what you were just saying feels like it even applies to having a conversation about your own life with a friend of listen if you actually want them to engage your story and to be a participant the way you talk about it can't be a sermon can't be like explaining just the lessons you're learning right now but the best illustration will be what is the process you're going through right now
2: well blaine and, and to that like I think we get sidetracked as kids early on, e- even kids who maybe are going to church, because a lot of the Bible stories were told, you know, at bedtime, you know, Daniel and the lion's den and David and Goliath and all these stories, they become these short morality lessons. And it really shortchanges, I think, the life of that biblical hero, person, because that was a part of their life. But when we take their whole life, just like if somebody would try to take our life and say, well, you know, Blaine's life is a lesson on being faithful with the money you have. You'd be like, well, that's, I kind of, there was more to me than that, you know, that was that, that was a piece of a small piece of something. And so I think we start to see story as what's the lesson in the story. And then, then we start to see the storyteller, God, as he's mainly a teacher So he's trying to teach us lessons. So in my life, I just have to learn the lessons to get through it. And we treat scripture that way, and we treat God that way, and we treat our own hearts that way. But when we start to see, no, actually our whole life is a story, and there's different themes, different seasons. There's different arcs that we're in. And when I talk to people about that, most of the time they have no idea what theme of their life is at this moment of the last year. What was the theme of the past year for you? And they just look at you. What, well, what chapter are you in in your story? Like, right, you don't know how many chapters are left, but what chapter are you in right now? Or, or what is the great threat right now in your story? How are you moving against that? How are you taking a stand against that? What are you fighting for? Like, people see their days as disconnected with no overarching story or plot. And I think they miss living a heroic life because they simply don't see life as a story and don't understand how it's not something just happening to them, but they're stepping into something with God. And it can be every great as any story that we've read in the Bible. Like, you know, do you wanna have the kind of life that 200 years from now people are telling their kids at bedtime, you know, because it was so epic? Well, it starts when you see your own life as a story and not a series of accidents.
1: So, so, so good. I've always been a little bit bugged by the people in my world that will skip to the end of a book that they've just started and scan for people's names and maybe not read people how it People in your ends. world,
0: you mean our mom. Mom. I mean mom. <laughs> mom
1: is who you're thinking of. I mean of. mom and I mean Olivia. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm outing the two of I you. I love you.
0: <laughs> they, they, they,
1: skipping to the end to know uh, like who's safe, who can I trust, and then going back and reading the story, there's something to that that I've always disliked because it seems to to rip out what life is like. It, it takes away the mystery. It takes away the, the power of choice. It oh, takes yeah. away a lot of that heroic day-to-day choices that can be made. And to be fair, there is part of the Christian story that we do know some of the end, but I don't know how my life is going to play out. And I don't know that I would want to know because all of a sudden I would feel like I am on some tracks and can just be passive in my own story and so i just there obviously there are so many things that you're offering in that just now but there's such power to the mystery and the twists and the turns and and being present to them
2: well you you're hitting on something that's a, a passion of mine because when you're in a story you know take just for simplicity an indiana jones movie so he's on the rickety bridge he's over a several hundred foot ravine the, you know, rickety bridge on either side of the cliff, the guys with swords swirling start coming at him. He's in the middle of the bridge. As a viewer of that movie, watching it, you lean forward. Like, you love those parts of the movie, right? But if you're Indiana Jones, it's tense, and it seems impossible, and it's a little nerve-wracking. And, and yet, when we watch those scenes, we know this is going to be one of the best parts of a movie, and yet in our own life, when we're in situations, this is the equivalent of that mythic scene, but in our own life, when the car breaks down and we don't have money, or when something happens with someone we love and the answer is unclear, we dread those moments and we, we immediately want closure and we want it to be over. And I get that, but I guess what I'm learning and inviting people into is, can you actually savor that mystery and that unknown, not that, you know, you're, you're not embracing something that's painful, or you're not saying, I want this to continue forever, but I'm saying in the mystery and the unknown, can you step into that and bring beauty and life and joy? And can you actually change the atmosphere in that situation because of who you are? That's where the story in your life gets exciting. And so many of us want to just move past it and get on. And, you know, it's like, Okay, well, in a movie, once the hero has gotten everything done in credits roll, like it's the story's over, the good part is at least, and do you really want that in your own life? Like if you're really wanting all the problems and everything to be done and all the answers that you've always wondered, well, great, when that happens, the credits roll, like you're done. And the goal isn't to be done. The goal is to live the journey in the journey well. And Kelly and I, my wife and I, talk about a lot how it's easy to have faith once something's done, but it's in the unknown, the not yet, where you're living in it, and you don't know the outcome. You don't know how it's going to end, but yet you can go, that's that's okay. Like, we're going to step into this with a strength, and our faith isn't going to waver, and that's part of the adventure. And I don't know. Like, to me, that's what faith is. It's stepping into the not yet, the unknown, and not hunkering down, hoping that you'll, you know, survive. And then once you're surviving throwing a party, it's throwing a party in the midst of the shitstorm.
0: Yeah, I'm not convicted at all by anything you're (laughs) saying. You just kind of blowed my hair back here. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You hinted at this, but I just want to keep you going in this direction for my own life of you saying, you know, there is a disposition that allows a person to actually engage, to step into the uncertainty in their own life. What does that look like? And what are the things that help a person who is on the Indiana Jones Bridge actually keep operating meaningfully, even enjoying what they're doing? But you used the phrase changing the atmosphere. Yep. What does it take to do that?
2: Okay, so... It's, I think it starts with a new definition for our, our gifting, or our creativity. And I'll, I'll tell you how this connects. But so many people try to formalize what you're good at. Whatever your talent is, there's an industry and there's, you know, you get accredited and you get a degree and, and you have to be approved and you have to, there's all these man-made kind of steps and rules to so many professions. But I think a new definition, a better one of creativity is, It's bringing something new into existence and changing the atmosphere through that. And so a stay-at-home mom does that all the time. A CEO can do that. A barista can do that. You're bringing something new into existence not by just what you do, but by who you are. And what I love about that definition is because that's how God creates. Like God creates by bringing—look at Genesis and the whole creation story— he's bringing things into existence that weren't there and he's literally changing the atmosphere i mean part of what he's bringing in are, are oceans and and mountains and the you know stars and and also though people and animals and and so how do we bring things into existence what is our calling on that now take that and go into our daily life well we all face chaos and i was i'm doing some study on chaos because that's um, a project I'm gonna I'm gonna probably write something for my next book on that. And the first time chaos is mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis one one, like the the very beginning, and, or I'm sorry, in Genesis one two. So it's you know in the beginning is Genesis one one. Genesis one two is talks about this black murky nothingness. That's this mysterious kind of single verse between Genesis one one in the beginning and one three and God created. And in one two, it talks about what a lot of the Hebrew scholars say is chaos. And they would say, somehow before creation, there was something because it was chaotic. It was chaos, and the Spirit hovers over that. And what they would say is in that section of the verse, God is bringing order out of chaos. He's creating and changing the atmosphere out of chaos. And so that got me wondering, okay, is his sons and daughters— Usually, when we face chaos, I mean, the typical reaction to our chaos in our lives is we hunker down, we try to wait it out, we panic, we freeze, but rarely do we step into chaos, into the eye of the storm, as sons and daughters of God, and say, Now we're going to change the atmosphere. We're going to step into chaos. We're not asking for it, we're not inviting it, we're not creating chaos, but chaos comes. And so now we have a choice. Do we either change chaos or does chaos change us? And so to step into our lives into chaos and actually as sons and daughters of God, take our gifting, take our strength, take our identity, and change the atmosphere, I think is huge. So I think, guys, though, if we can approach when chaos hits our lives, and and it's usually daily, and usually chaos is just when your life is feeling totally out of control, disordered, you're losing heart, it's stealing your joy, it's creating panic and fear, rather than hunkering down or growing bitter or fearful to say, I'm gonna step into this. And the image in my mind is somebody stepping into the eye of the storm. I'm not running from it, I'm not locking myself in a basement, I'm walking toward it and it's gonna blink instead of me. And it's not because of bravado or it's not because of some false macho strength. It's because I'm walking with God into chaos and I'm bringing order out of chaos, just like God in creation, Genesis 1-2, he brings, that's what the Hebrew scripture says is he brought order out of chaos. And so how do we do that in our lives? Order not meaning control, but order meaning beauty and life and love. And, and literally change the atmosphere of the people in our home, around us, who we work with, who we engage with, change the atmosphere through stepping into chaos in a new way. So that to me is what every great story hints at and does. They don't use those terms, but that's what happens. It's the protagonist, the internal chaos in their life, somehow they master it. And they come out different. And they change the story around them by changing who they are first.
0: Yeah, phenomenal. Shifting to some tactical questions. I know that you've engaged hundreds of stories over the space of your career. You're a writer yourself. Your son is a writer. And some of the things that I would love to know are, because these are actually, this is a discipline that people can import into their own life. When you're working with a storyteller whose work is stalling, what are some of the go-to questions you use to get a conversation going again?
2: Well, this is, I mean, this happens so often in publishing. And what, here's, the, here's the short answer. When somebody's story, if and I'm saying story as if they're a novelist, if somebody's story is stalling, but it could be any creative endeavor. If what you love to do, your dreams, your talent is stuck or stalling, it's almost always because your life story is stuck. So the story on paper, the biggest limitation for an author, you know, the biggest threat to the protagonist is not in the story of the antagonist, it's the author themselves. Like the author is the most deadly threat to the protagonist of any story because the protagonist can't live a better life, a greater life, a braver life. Than the storyteller so the storyteller limits their protagonist in ways they don't even imagine and so when the story would be stuck usually it was because the storyteller was stuck and so rather than focus on the words on the page initially it would actually start with conversations with them and you realize ah okay like you've lost heart in your own life like you're convinced that your better stories have already been written Or, oh, okay, you believe you're only as good as the numbers on the bestseller chart. But whatever it was, if you found out what was causing them to implode or freeze, you would free the story up. And there's application on that to any creative person. Like, wherever your dreams feel stalled, the answer isn't dream smaller dreams. The answer is actually counterintuitively, no, actually amp up the dreams. Like the dreams you've already had aren't happening. Don't downgrade those dreams. Upgrade the dreams. Dream such big dreams that the only way they're going to happen is when God comes through. Because then you know it's not up to you. And there's a trust and there's a growing up as a son or daughter in that. And so if you want your story to get unstuck, I think it starts with getting your life unstuck. And usually that's growing in expectancy for what god will do and releasing this thought that it's all up to you because the it's all up to you just creates you know if it's quicksand you're gonna sink quicker by trying to get yourself out of the quicksand
0: alan that's phenomenal thanks for coming on the podcast this has been so fun
2: it's been i've loved it yeah it's been a blast
0: thanks for
1: listening to the podcast today guys we hope that you've enjoyed it If you have, we hope that you might send this along to someone in your world. I'm not asking for a five-star rating or a review. Rather, that if something about this podcast struck you, that you might pass this off to somebody that you
0: think would really enjoy it. Looking for more? Good news. There is a new issue of Anson's Magazine. If you're listening to this after October 10th. If it's before October 10th, you can just wait. And there's always the chance we might be late. Sometimes we send you guys over to social media to keep up with us, but so little really happens on social media now. That's kind of a moot point. And make sure you keep your eyes peeled for our films rolling out in the fall. See you guys next week.